I was saved in 1974 when I was two years old. No, um, so I've been a believer for 28 years. And the walk, you know how it is when you walk with God. You go forward, you go backward. You know, it's kind of a shimmy thing. Uh, but, but overall, you're growing. The Lord grows you. But there are times, at least for some people, where you go through uh, acceleration periods where you have maybe a paradigm shift, where a fundamental new revelation hits home. And it's not usually about new information. It's usually about a new way of seeing the old information. I've had three of these, three of these paradigm-shifting periods in my life. The first was in 1977, when I really got a revelation of God's outrageous grace and of my outrageous worth before God because of His outrageous grace. And it was that revelation that really would eventually get me out of the legalistic form of Christianity that I was in at the time. I learned what it was to live out of grace. The second major paradigm shift for me came beginning in around 1989 or so, uh, when I first encountered a demonized person. And over a period of about three years, um, the, the, I, 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 my eyes were opened up to the reality of spiritual warfare, that there's a war going on. And I always knew that intellectually, but I never lived it. It never impacted my life. But now I just saw it differently. I framed the world fundamentally different than I had before. I feel as though I am in right now a third paradigm shift. In fact, I know I am. And it has to do with what we're talking about here. It has to do with, with the love of God. You can't get more basic than this, and you can't get more profound than this. I am just, it's not new information, but I'm feeling it with a force I've never felt before, and I'm seeing it with a clarity that I've never had before. The centrality of love about who God is, about who we are, and about what we're supposed to be doing. It's all about love. If love is happening, everything else that's supposed to happen will happen. But if love isn't happening, it doesn't matter what else is happening, it's worthless. It, it's, it's from the beginning and the middle and the end. It's about receiving and abiding in and dispensing the unsurpassable love of God. And love is all about ascribing worth to another. That's what God does to us. We do it to ourselves, and then we do it to others. And this sums up everything. I'm just seeing with, with, with a clarity, and there's such a freedom in this, that the one job we have, we've got one job. In the end, the Christian walk is profoundly simple. We try so very hard to make it complicated. We try so very hard to, to make it religious. But it's about one thing and one thing only, and that is walking in love, wa loving like God loves, end of story. Loving like God loves. And yeah, there's a lot of other things we do and, and principles we teach and, and things like that. But all of those are simply ways of specifying how we walk in love. What it is to love like God loves. It's all summed up in this. Every moment, every day, with every person, in every situation, know this. Your one job is to ascribe unsurpassable worth to them. As I have gotten clearer on this, as it's become more, more crystallized in my mind, I, I've got a, a the, the vision for what the church is supposed to be has become clearer, and then the perception of how very far the church as a whole misses this has become clearer. We get involved in so many things that just aren't about love, don't we? We, we get involved in all sorts of... of uh, of, of discussions of, of religious stuff, of controversies, of, of all sorts of things that aren't about love. And maybe there's a place for all these things, but if they at all usurp the place of love, they become an evil thing, a damaging thing. I, I heard this last week about a, a fellowship of house churches that is, 
uh, really getting rocked. It's in a state of controversy and possibly splitting up. And what they're debating is whether or not God's love is unconditional. Uh, think about this. But see, this, is, this goes on all the time. I'm not going to fellowship with you because I think God's love is unconditional and you don't. What's wrong with the picture? But this is just like it happened all throughout church history. People put people to death because they don't accept the love of Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, well, see, what's going on there is that love isn't first. What's first is I'm right and you're wrong. And whenever I'm right and you're wrong gets placed above love, you've got something that's evil. I don't care if you are right. And chances are you're probably not right on every point after all. The church gets all knotted up about a lot of things that aren't about love. My vision for Woodland Hills Church, it's, it's the vision we've always had, is, is to be a, a, a community of people that advance the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness by loving God, by loving our, uh, each other as ourselves, and by loving our, the world. And, and that's, that's what it's all about. But I get a picture, it's been increasingly enfleshed and, and crystallized for me, of a community of people who, who just embody this love in our small groups and in our large gatherings and in our walk, which, is, which, which gives the church... Whatever else we're known for, it's known for being a place that, that has got an outrageous kind of love. The reputation, the one reputation that God wanted the church to have was not that we're right on everything, it's that we know how to love. It's by our love that the world knows that Jesus Christ is for real. It ought to be the case that when the prostitute wakes up some morning and is feeling lonely and just needs some people who are going to love her, she thinks about going to church. It ought to be the case that when the drug addict or the person who's been through their fourth marriage or whatever kind of catastrophic thing they've been involved in, when they need, know there's a, a safe place for them to love, where people are going are, to get love, they think about going to the church. I think, I don't know what, if I believe what Woodland Hills Church believes or whatever, but man, I, all I know is that when I go there, they just surround me with this love, and right now I'm really a hurting unit. And see, that's, that's how God draws people in. And I believe the biggest indictment on the church today is that it is the last place where prostitutes and drug addicts and other people would run when they need to feel love. They may go to the bar, they may go to their pimp, but they don't go to church. And that is an indictment. The one job we have is to be outrageously loving. And see, it's easy to say that the church, the, the reputation of the church should be loving. Yes, the church's reputation should be loving. But now I'll go one step further and realize this. You are the church. I am the church. And so really what it comes out to me is this. The one, the one goal I should have in life is to leave the reputation of being outrageously loving. The one thing, the one mark you want to make, it ought to be our ambition to have written on our tombstone, every one of us, maybe they were a loser in every respect, but they sure knew how to love. Because whether you were successful or whether you weren't successful, whether you were rich or whether you were poor, uh, you know, whatever else you accomplished, it really doesn't matter. The question is this. The one criteria that we're judged by is, do you love? Do we love? Do we, do, do we know how to love in an outrageous way? Do you love like God loves? That's, that's it in a nutshell. That's our, it's got to be our main hunger, our main driving force, our main aspiration. Now, the Christian life isn't just about behavior. It would be easy to stand up here and say, you know, we've we got to start loving, start loving, you know, start doing this, start doing that. And that's good and that's true, and to the extent that you're tapping into God, you'll be able to do it. But to the extent that you're not, you're not going to be able to do it, and then you'd feel indicted. The Christian walk isn't about... A set of behaviors, it's about tapping into a source that changes our behavior. Right? And that source is Jesus Christ. So what we want to do here is not just about giving some tips on how to live. 
I'm going to get very practical with this stuff throughout the summer. But right now I want to dig down deep theologically. I want to turn this auditorium into a classroom and really dig into this question. It's going to get into some theology. And by the way, we are taking these sermons and and, uh, making a study guide uh, of these sermons and putting them on the website, uh, whchurch.org. And I encourage you to download these study guides and the sermon notes and study them and chew on them in your small groups because we just got to get this. We got to be chewing on this. Um, I want to turn this into a classroom really about just talking how do you love and what are the obstacles to love? What are the obstacles to love? And the place I want to start is to go back to the beginning when the problems all began. It's Genesis chapter 3. And what we're going to find here is rather surprising. It's not what we'd ordinarily expect. Whenever we let the Word of God just sort of talk to us, it it often breaks our preconceptions. Genesis chapter 3. Now we could right away get into all sorts of controversy and discussion about whether this is symbolic or that symbolic or, you know, all those sorts of things. And I don't give a rip about any of that right now. What I want us to do is just hear the text. It is so profound. I've been been chewing on this text now for, for about six weeks. And, and uh, it, it's, its profoundness is just mind-boggling. Um, you know, if I didn't have any other reason for believing the Word of God was true, if, if I didn't have any reason for believing the Bible was the Word of God, I would believe this passage is the Word of God just because it has impacted me so pro- profoundly. It, it, it reads my life. It's not just the story of something that happened a long time ago. It's the story of our life every day. And its profoundness, its, its ability to change by hitting at the center is, is just unexplainable unless it's divinely inspired. And it is divinely inspired, so let's read it. Now the serpent was more crafty, the author says, than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden or the center of the garden. Just take note of that right now. Nor shall you touch it or you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when the woman saw, now look, her perception is starting to be affected already because she's starting to believe a lie. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, which it wasn't, but she thought it was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Just packed with profoundness here. I first want to, this morning, give a very big overview of what's going on in this Genesis chapter. Uh, And then I want to uh, get more specific about the lie that the serpent told the woman. What's going on in this chapter is this. The first thing I I notice about the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you've got to ask the question, why is the forbidden tree the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Wouldn't you think it would be the tree of of heresy or the tree of ungodliness, the tree of lust or whatever? Why is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's not what we would expect. But the Lord, the, the passage says that, that both the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were at the center of the garden. And I don't think the author is just interested there in giving us a little bit of location information. He's making a point. 
The point he's making is this. In the paradise that God wants for us, in the, 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 the nature of creation that God wills, at the center of everything, at the center of our life, are two things. There's a provision and a prohibition. The provision is the tree of life, and, and it's basically this. God's going to meet our needs, uh, and He wants to do it forever. He's going to meet our needs. We can eat of this. This is the life of God. At the center of our life is God's provision for us. But there's also a prohibition here. It is a boundary, a no trespassing sign. At the center of our life, which means this, everything, hang, everything revolves around this, is a prohibition that says this, leave to God what belongs to God. It's a boundary between us and God. God is saying, I've created you for a purpose and it's wonderful and it will go well for you if you stay within the domain that I've created you for. But leave to me what belongs to me. You are not God, I am, so let me take care of the God stuff and you take care of the human stuff. And it's interesting, but the thing that the Lord specifies that He wants to keep for Himself is the knowledge of good and evil. You leave that one to me. Judging good and evil, you leave that to me. Your job, the whole domain of paradise, is to reflect who I am, to be in my image, to uh, uh, receive of the fullness that I am, to have that fullness and body in you, and then, be, and, and then love others like I love you. That's the job of human beings, to participate, as we saw several weeks ago, in the ecstatic divine dance, to participate in the triune love. That's our job. Our job is to love. What's not our job is to try to be God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, leave that alone. That's mine. Now, the fall is, is all about reversing all of this. Eve, Eve inserts her will into the center of the garden. She wills what's at the center, what is forbidden to her. She wills to become wise. She wants to be able to know like God. She wants to be able to judge like God. She wants to be able to discern like God. So her will is thrust into the middle of the garden. She now becomes the center of everything, and all of us become the center of everything to the degree that we participate in this. So now the fall or the natural world or what's, what the Bible calls the flesh, it looks like this. We are at the center and everything revolves around us. We are the center of our existence. We see the world through our own eyes and everything revolves around us. But now you see at the center of creation, instead of there being a God who overflows with fullness and gives fullness to everybody, it, when we're at the center, we've cut ourselves off from our source. And we are not our own sources. We don't have life in and of ourselves. And so we become empty. And rather than trying to get life from God, we now try to get life from everything else around us. We live our life out of hunger rather than out of fullness. We live it out of desperation rather than celebration. We're meant to live overflowing towards others, but now, because we're empty, we're always trying to meet our own needs. And the world around us, because we're hungry, everything looks like it can meet our needs. Eve looked at the tree and all of a sudden it became desirous. Boy, you know that... You know, she's starting to believe a lie. The source is starting to be cut, uh, cut off. And all of a sudden, the tree it looks like it's kind of delicious, kind of desirable. I could become wise with that, and I need to become wise. And so human beings live life as a sort of feeding frenzy, trying to get our needs met. And now we kick in our knowledge of good and evil. We're always assessing things, always judging things. Does it meet my needs? Does it not meet my needs? Does it make me feel good? Does it not make me feel good? Does it agree with me? Does it not agree with me? We have a perpetual commentary that we were never meant to have. It's a commentary of judgment. We're playing God, the knowledge of good and evil. We, we go through life constantly assessing things. I like, I don't like. Gross. Nice. Low. That's good. How could, I can't believe she did that. Oh, look what that person's saying. Well, you know what they, you know, da-da-da-da. Commentary. Perpetual commentary, don't we? 
Don't we? And every one of those thoughts chokes off the one thing we were called to do, and that is love. God is able to love and judge at the same time. He does it perfectly. We're not, because we're not God. When we try to be God, it chokes off the love in our life. It's the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Now, this doesn't mean that we never have have a place to confront somebody and and things of that sort. We're going to get into the details of this. But it does mean this. You see, if you invite me into your life and you say, will you help me walk with God? And and now, out of love, I will say stuff to you. But that's very different than 99% of what we do when we go through life and we're constantly assessing, constantly judging, constantly critically evaluating, yada, yada, yada. And all of it is a way of feeding ourselves. You see, we're always getting life. For a moment, you can feel a little superior to a person when you can look at how ugly their dress is because you'd never wear that dress or, or how bad their hair is or how sinful they are or what gross behavior or whatever. You're drinking from a tree you were never meant to drink off of. Our job is to love. Our job is to love. That's our proper domain. Us little human beings can share in the ecstasy that God is when we stick to the proper territory that is given to us and it is to love. And everything that's about the fall is about taking us from love, and everything that's about redemption is about getting us back in line with love. So let's ask this question. How did the enemy, the serpent, get us? How did the serpent, he's called the accuser in Genesis 12, and what he does is he accuses, and when he he gets us to agree with the accusations, we become a race of accusers rather than a race of lovers, a race of judgers rather than a race of lovers. How did the enemy get us to participate in this accusation, in this judgment, in this eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, it all starts with the first judgment. It starts with a lie. It starts with an accusation brought against God. And everything in our life that is not in line with God starts with this misalignment. This is the foundation on which everything else is built. If this foundation is off by a quarter inch, the top's going to be off by ten feet. You see, this is the foundational. What do you think about God? So the enemy comes to Eve, and he brings an accusation. He introduces a judgment into Eve's mind. She was walking in innocence with God, but now he wants to get her out of that innocence by entertaining a judgment about God. Did God say, he said, did God say that if you eat of the tree, you'll die? Well, God is a liar. There's the judgment. There's the accusation. You won't die? Ha! God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. Knowing good and evil, you'll be wise. And that's why he said don't eat of it. He doesn't want any competitors. The suggestion is actually that God got to the top spot he's in by eating of that tree. So really the tree's in the top spot, and he just happened to find it first or something like that. So if you want to be at the top spot, if you want to be all you can be, if you want to actualize yourself, well, don't just rely on God. Don't just try to get life from God. Eve might maybe would have thought, well, gosh, I've been happy. I've been really, you know, this has been wonderful. I, I'm in union with God. And the enemy was suggesting that you've been duped. Oh, he's, he's, he's brainwashing you because he doesn't want you to be all that you can be. If you want to be like him, see that tree over there? That tree will make you wise. And the reason he forbid it is because he doesn't want any competitors. The lie is the lie that God is not the, uh, the, the loving, good God that he in fact is. It's a lie that God is untrustworthy. He can't be counted on. He can't be depended on. He can't be your go-to. The enemy gives Eve a false picture of, of, of God. And, w- and when you've got, and to the degree that you've got, a false picture of God, everything else about your life is going to be screwed up, guaranteed. We always, this is the root of all sin. It's this, this is the, the judgment behind all judgments. 
This is the blockage behind all, all, everything that blocks love from flowing. It's a, a, a mistaken view, a wrong view of who God is. Think about this. We're made in the image of God. And here is a true thing. You will image God. You will image the God you believe in, whether it's for better or for worse. We, you can't help it. You are just wired to image whatever you think is God. You will live it out. You'll play it out. You, all your emotions, all your thinking, all your activity will be a reflection of the God that you believe in. If you're an atheist, well, then what you believe is God is just matter. That's the ultimate reality. And all your thoughts and all your thinking and all your behavior will eventually uh, come to manifest that. If you believe in a controlling God, you know what? You'll, you're going to tend to be a controlling person. Or you might be a person who, who can't make any decisions because you think everything's being controlled. You mirror in a positive or a negative way, and both of them are actually quite negative, that your belief that God is, is, is always controlling you. Or if you have a shaming picture of God, you're going to be a shame-filled person who's going to be shaming other people. We always mirror the God we believe in. So also, the enemy here brings a judgment against God. God is untrustworthy. He can't meet your needs. He's really your adversary. This is the accusation. And the result is that now Eve's going to live off of that. She believes it. And so now, if God's untrustworthy, that means that you're on your own. You're empty. You thought you were full, but really you're empty. There's things that you can get, things that you can buy, things that you can achieve, things that you can acquire, especially the knowledge of good and evil, which will really fulfill all that you can be, maximize your potential. And so Eve acts on this. Behind every, behind every sin, every, every, every problem, every issue in our life is going to be a false picture of God. Now, God's answer to the deception of the enemy, God's answer to lie is truth. And you know what the truth is? The truth is Jesus. The truth is Jesus Christ. God's answer, God's response to the lie in, in Genesis 3 is Jesus Christ. God's response to the false picture of who He is is the right picture of who He is, and the right picture of who He is is Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, if we're, if we're going to be able to walk in the fullness of love that God wants us to walk in, we've got to be tapped into our source fully. And if we're going to be tapped into our source, we've got to know who our source is fully, and our source is Jesus Christ. And to the degree that your view of God agrees with Jesus Christ, you're going to be drinking from the well of God's love and then living it out. And to the degree that your view of God doesn't agree with Jesus Christ, you're going to have blockages in your source and therefore difficulty living it out. Jesus Christ is called the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The word truth in Greek is aletheia. Uh, it comes from the combination of two words, a, which means not, and lanthanos, which means to cover. So Jesus is to speak most literally now, God uncovered. God, God revealed. God disclosed. For centuries, and, and God spent centuries setting this whole thing up. He was aiming towards this. He wanted to reveal the truth of who He was. When God is uncovered, when God comes up from behind the lying, deceptive, judgmental pictures that we've had about God, Pictures that we've projected on the God on the basis of the lie of the enemy or the past experience or the way your dad treated you or, or what happened to you on the bus. You know, whatever. We, we construct a God after our own image. All of that hides the true God. But Jesus discloses the true God. He brings Him out. He uncovers Him. That's why He's called the Word of God. When God speaks, it looks like Jesus. That's why He's called the image of God. Uh, literally in Greek, it's icon. This is God's icon. The place where God is embodied. The place where God becomes visible. 
Paul says that the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see the glory of God, the radiance of God, the display of God? You look at the face of Jesus Christ. It says in the book of Hebrews that He's the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint. Everyone say exact. It's the exact. This isn't an approximation. This isn't an almost. This is the exact imprint of God's very being. The innermost essence of God is exactly manifested, exactly imprinted in the person of Jesus Christ. All you need to know about God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. What you need to know about God is that He dies for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is, this is if we're going to walk in the fullness of love, everything hangs on this. To make as our sole criteria for who God is, what His character is about, what His plan for my life is, ultimately the standard, the criteria, the bedrock is the person of Jesus Christ and nothing but the, the person of Jesus Christ. We've got to fix that in our mind. That's why it says in the book of Hebrews, to fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes there. Just keep your eyes focused on Him, the author and finisher of our faith. To the degree that our view of God is other than Jesus Christ, we're going to be, have blockages in our source. He'll be to some degree untrustworthy, to some degree questionable, to some degree iffy. We're, we're not going to have a confidence that He is who He says He is. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 3. He prays that uh, Christ would be rooted in the hearts of the Ephesians through faith. Faith is trust. We said that last week. The only thing that matters is faith energized by love. And what is the faith? Faith is our confidence that God is who He says He is in the person of Jesus Christ, and therefore that we are who God says we are in the person of Jesus Christ. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that as you're doing that, you'll be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. Get those roots down there deep. In what? In the love of God. Where do you find the love of God? In the person of Jesus Christ, who is now dwelling within you. Be rooted and grounded in love. To be rooted, it, it, it speaks of, of stability. A tree that's got the deep roots is one that, that uh, you know, maybe bends when the strong wind comes, but it's not uprooted like other trees are. This is your stability. This, this is your rock that you're planted on. Everything else is sinking sand, the Bible says. When the questions of life come, the source you go to should be Jesus Christ. Get rooted in the love of Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't know, when, when, the, when the confusion comes, and it sometimes does come, when, when your world begins to be rocked, when things are going wrong, the place to go to get the roots in is Jesus Christ. Drink of the love. Get stable in the love of Jesus Christ. Everything else is shaky. Everything else is iffy. Everything else is questionable. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen. Get rooted in that. Know this. To speak about roots also speaks about a source. The tree just drinks from the source. That is Jesus Christ. And so also when we in life, we, we aren't our own sources. We can never be our own source. We, we weren't made for that. We're made to receive from God, and this is how you do it. You get confident. You have faith in the love of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And you get your roots down there deep. That's your stability, but it's also your source. So when you are weak, you drink of His strength. Just drink of His strength. And, and when you are lonely, you drink from His companionship. And when you're apathetic, you drink from His passion. And when you feel like you're dead, you've got to drink from His life. And when you feel condemned, you drink drink from His forgiveness. But when you feel superior because you find yourself judging others, you drink from His mercy and remember that you yourself are a forgiven sinner. And when you feel loveless and when you feel hatred, you drink of His love. He's the source, the one source where to go to get rooted and get grounded and get stable on this. Nothing else but this. 
Everything depends. He's our umbilical cord, if you will, to God. Yeah, we've got to keep that thing clear, and it's all about letting God define who He is in the person of Jesus Christ. Theologians often speculate about the attributes of God. You can read about some of those in the book, Across the Spectrum. You know, the different views on, on, on what people think about this or that or the other thing, and that's fine. God's immutability, God's omnipotence, God's omnibenevolence, great stuff. Let's think about that. But you know what? It's all a waste of time if it doesn't agree with the, the view of God revealed in Jesus Christ. You know, reasoning is great, but you don't go to it. It's not your go-to. It's not your rock. It's not the thing to be grounded in when it comes to thinking about God. Because God might surprise you. The Bible says He's unchanging, but He became a man. That's a change. The Bible says He's unchanging, but He lets Himself get crucified on, on, on the cross. See, what that tells you, if Christ is your criteria, is this. The way that God is unchanging is in His love, praise God. We push Him away. We run the other direction. We do a lot of things that you'd think would get Him to stop loving us, but He keeps coming, He keeps coming, He keeps coming, He keeps coming to the, to the cross of, of Golgotha and, and dies for us. That's how God is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we talk about God's omnipotence and the attribute of God's omnipotence. Well, how is God omnipotent? Is He like an Arnold Schwarzenegger? Look to the cross. No, he's not a cosmic Arnold Schwarzenegger. He shows his omnipotence, the greatest act of omnipotence through those biceps. God flexes his muscle when he allows himself to be crucified on the cross. That's how he defeats the devil. That's how he overcomes sin. That's how he wins souls. It's an incredible act of omnipotence, but it's not what we would think. The cross has got to be our criteria. The cross has got to be the place where we go to understand what God is like, and everything hangs upon this. A lot of times we, we, uh, we, we thank God for, for you know, and we, we see the goodness of God and, and things around us. And that's a good thing to do. You know, the beauty of God is revealed in the majesty of the mountains and the beauty of the sunset and the birds flying overhead as long as they don't drop on us. And, and you know, we just declare the beauty of God all around us in the music. And that's good. That's wonderful. You should do that. The Bible says the glory of God is revealed throughout all creation. But don't get rooted in that. Don't let that be the foundation for why you think God is good. Because the same world that's got the majestic mountains and the beautiful sunrises also has diseases and cancer and earthquakes and famines and tornadoes and volcanoes and mud killing, or, uh, mudslides that kill people. So if you're rooted in the goodness of God, if, you're good, if your view of the goodness of God is rooted in the nature of the world around you, it's going to be iffy, it's going to be questionable, it's going to be, you know, you're not going to know what, what to do with that when times hit. Sometimes we, we thank God for the blessings in our life, and that's a good thing. Praise God for the blessings that are there. We, we bless God for our good families. We bless God for, for our friends. We bless God for our good health. We thank God for our good finances. And we say, oh, God is good, and, 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 and here's why, because He does all these things to me. Now, that's good. We should thank God for every good thing. Every good gift comes down from the Father above, the Bible says. But don't, that's not your rooting. That's not your grounding. Don't base your view of God on that. Because in this war zone that we're living in, sometimes the blessing is there and sometimes it ain't there, right? You know, sometimes things are going good and sometimes they're going bad. Friends sometimes die and leave. Health sometimes leaves you. We just yesterday had a, had a funeral for a, a young woman in our church, 32 years old, a mother of three, and it was a medication problem. Healthy one day, gone the next. The Bible says life is like grass. It, it, it's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It's, it's, it's a very iffy thing. It's short and it's, it's contingent. It, it depends on a lot of variables. You may be blessed today and not blessed tomorrow, but I want to tell you this. When you're blessed, God is good. And when you're not blessed, God is still good. Amen? When the family's doing well, God is good. And when the family's blowing apart, God is still good. And when you're running marathons, God is good. But when you're dying of cancer, God is still good. 
when the finances are there, God is good. And when you're going bankrupt, God is still good because God's goodness doesn't depend on the circumstances of our life. It depends on the revelation of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. You got to know. You got to know what you know and know what you don't know. And what we know is that God is revealed in Jesus Christ. We need to trust God on everything else. Trusting God is a lot like trusting a person. You know, you, you know what you know, and, and, and then there's times where you've got to call in your, your trust chips. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's sort of like this. Let's say that my wife were to go over and visit some friends. We've got some friends now in London. And she goes over to London, and I can't have any contact with her. And, you know, so she's over there for a couple of weeks. After a week, I get a video in the mail because somebody sent me this and says, Boy, you don't know your wife very well. Look what she's doing. And I watched the video, and here she is walking down the streets of London in the bad part of town, and, and whenever she sees uh, some beggars on the street, she kicks them. They're like, Phew. And then she giggles. That's like, and then she steals one of their pencils, you know, and, and, and she's just mean and nasty to all these, these people who come up and beg, and she's like, and, and, and I'm watching this thing, and I'm going, What, uh, honey, honey, what are you doing? What are you doing? Now, here's the thing. I don't know what she's doing. I don't have a clue. But I know her. I, I, I'm rooted and grounded in our love, in our relationship. And to, to the degree that I'm rooted and grounded in our relationship, I'm just going to have to trust that what she's doing, I know, that she's, I know she's a gracious, compassionate, loving, kind person. So whatever she's doing over there, somehow it must be consistent with that. I don't know what she's doing. I'm just going to have to trust. Maybe, you know, I'll speculate. Maybe, maybe this is some kind of a show. Maybe it's a joke on me. You know, that's the first thing I suspect. Or maybe she knows something about these people that I, I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe this is some kind of strange evangelism tool they're trying out. I have no idea. I have no idea. But here's the thing. I'm not going to overturn what I know about my wife on the basis of this video. I'm rooted and grounded in love for her, not in the video. But see, if I wasn't rooted and grounded in love for her, well, then maybe this video... All of a sudden, this video would have equal authority as, as our relationship. And now my view of my wife, you see why this is so important? I would begin to develop an accusation against my wife. I would begin to question her character. And that would even increasingly sever the love relationship that I have with her. We can't judge God for the same reason we can't judge other people, and that's because we don't have all the information. Whenever we judge another person, think about this. It presupposes that we don't trust them, Okay, we're not, and we'll talk about this in weeks to come, but we're not assuming the best in them. We're not trying to ex explain. We're very good at explaining our own bad behavior, but we don't even try to explain other people's behavior. We just judge them. They're bad people. Okay, it, it presupposes that we don't trust them, and it presupposes that we've got information that we really don't have. This is how we're acting like God. We are the center, and we set ourselves up as judge. I, I remember years ago, my father and I were driving to a music store for me to pick up a cymbal or something like that when I was in a band. This is back in 1972 or so, I guess. And on the way to this store, downtown Minneapolis, this guy in this big, old, junky, flaming red car cut us off right in front of us. Almost got us into a car wreck. And he screeched his wheels and cut in front of us and screeched before another car. And he was just weaving in and out, putting everyone's life at risk. And man... We got so mad. And my dad, when he got mad, he got creative. He was, the wor he was a genius at swearing. He could put together more curse words together without a single clean word uh, than any other person on the planet in the history of the world. I'm sure of it. He could just... It's kind of a demonic speaking in tongues. 
It, it was just, it was a work of art. And he got so mad, he just reamed that guy. Oh, just, you know, and I kind of joined in with my little, little dad sort of cursing. Yeah, I could never do as good as him, but he's a poopy. Yeah, yeah. But so we're, we're, we're reaming the guy out. I mean, for about, you know, five miles, we're just talking about this guy and condemning him. And oh, people are so rude and yada, yada, yada. Now, just before we got to the hospital, there, or before we got to this music store, there was a hospital. And we went past the hospital and we saw that big, ugly green, that red car out in front of the emergency room. And we drove past it, kind of, no, not quite so. My dad says, maybe we were a little quick on the draw on that one. Because yeah? you don't know. You don't know what's going on in their life. You just go by the appearance of the moment and so you judge. God does know that's why he's a good judge. We don't know that's why we're a bad judge. But see, we do the same thing with God. Uh, we, we don't know. We, we don't know what it is to be God. At least I don't. Maybe you do. Uh, what it is to walk in God's shoes. What it is to run this universe. What it is to deal with what he deals with. And therefore, we can't judge God. We've got to trust God. We've got to know what we know and know what we don't know. What we do know is that God looks like Jesus Christ. What we don't know is much about anything else. So you just got to trust. You just got to trust. There's a whole book of the Bible that's written for this. It's, it's the book of Job. I love this book. It is just oozing with divine, profound wisdom. And the, th- the central point of the book is to show why human beings can't judge God. God says this to Job in chapter 40. Are you going to be my fault finder? Is a fault finder going to contend with the Almighty? You're going to be my backseat driver? Good luck. Kind of chiding Job here. Will you even put me in the wrong? You're going to judge me, Job? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And by the way, all condemnations involve self-justifications because you're drinking life from it. And this is what Job was doing throughout the whole book. The whole book is like this. It's about how the accuser makes us accusers. The accuser come and acu- comes and accuses God of running a charade creation. There's no real free will here. That's the essence of his critique. You, know, you set things up so people basically have to wor- uh, worship you. Well, then the accuser turns on Job, and Job then accuses God. Throughout the whole book, he says some nasty things about God. He's judging God. Job's friends don't want to do that, so they judge Job. So the accuser makes accusers out of all of them. And when, God, when, when, when the Lord shows up at the end, he basically puts everyone in their place and says, you guys don't know what you're talking about on anything. There's two main points he makes in, in two different monologues. First, he says, think of the mysteries of creation. Do you know anything about creation? Were you there, he says, when I established the creation? Did you set the boundaries? Did you set the, uh, the, the, the parameters? Did you make the sun to rise? Did you put the stars out there? Did you make the wind blow from the east to the west? Do you even know what the wind is? Do you have a clue as to what is going on here? No, you don't. And until you do, maybe you better, you better be a little slower on the draw. You don't know what it is to create this universe, to run this universe. You don't walk in my shoes, so don't judge. You're a little human being. I'm God. You be you and I'll be God and we'll get along just fine. And then he turns, and, and, and in the next chapters, he talks about Behemoth and Leviathan. These were cosmic creatures that really represented, the ancient people believed in, that really represented evil. And, and they were always threatening the earth. And so what God says to, to, to Job is this, can you tame this creature? Can you, you want to go against Leviathan with that flaming torch of fire he bro- blows out of his mouth? You want to just you know, try to go fishing for him? You want to ride on his back? You want to try to tame him, Job? Can you contend with him? Even the gods see him and they tremble. You, are you going to play ball with him? You don't know anything about spiritual warfare. You don't know what I'm up against. You don't know about the forces of evil that are going on here. And until you do, maybe you should be a little slower on the draw. Everything depends on us knowing what we know and knowing what we don't know. And what we've got to know that we know is that God looks like Jesus Christ. He, he, trust Him in this. You know, the place 
that I, and I, I, I've always said I would be very honest in the pulpit, and so I'm going to be very honest. Probably a preacher shouldn't say this. But I'm going to tell you that one of the areas where I have the hardest time trusting God, but I'm getting better at it, I think, is for me, the, I have to call in trust chips a lot of times when I read the Bible. Anyone else like that? Uh, when I read some sections of the Bible, I, 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 it's like, I know I'm supposed to say this is, you know, every passage is beautiful and wonderful and ministers to you, and I hear people saying that all the time, and I wonder to myself, are we reading the same Bible? Uh, you know, there, there's stuff in there where I, I just, it's like watching my wife kick a blind person on a videotape. Like, what are you doing, honey? And I read some portions of the Bible, and it's like, what? Couldn't, did you have to kill the Canaanite children? I mean, what were you up to? What was going on there? And there's these episodes that just seem so utterly contradictory to, to the God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. I look at God hanging, dying for me on a cross, and I like that. I read some Old Testament passages like, what were you thinking of here? Now, here's my choice. I can either decide that, that uh, um, I, I, I'm gonna, I know God in Jesus Christ, and I'll trust God on the rest of this. Or I take those passages, and now I have something competing with Jesus Christ as what really reveals God. Well, you know, maybe God's kind of good like He is in Jesus, but He's also really mean and nasty. And I'll put those two things together, and it's like me qualifying my estimation of my wife on the basis of the videotape. What's it going to be? What the Bible would have us do is this, to know what we know and know what we don't know. There are times where we just got to trust. I'm not sure what God was up to with the Canaanites. We can speculate about that. I could talk about how evil they were, talk about the long-range uh, objectives that God had, why this was necessary. But I don't know for sure. I just have to believe that if I did know, if I was God, in other words, if I was omniscient, if I could know all the variables, I'd see the reason for it, and I'd see that as bizarre as it sounds, it was loving. But I, I don't see all of that, so I just have to trust. I just have to trust. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 1. In times past, God spoke in diverse and various ways, but in these last days, He's spoken through His Son. These last days, this is the definitive revelation. Whom He appointed heir of all things. This is, Jesus Christ sums up everything. He inherits everything through whom He created the worlds. Everything exists for the purpose of Jesus Christ. And now, now the definitive revelation of who God is and what the purpose of life is being revealed. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of His very being. And He sustains everything by His powerful world. word. What He's saying here is this. A lot of revelations of God, and they're wonderful. But you know what? They're provisional. This is the final, last day's revelation. Those, were, they, those anticipated the final. This is the final. Those were through prophets. This one's through His own Son. Those were in writing. This is, an, 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 this is exact incarnation. Those, are appro- those were approximations. This is the exact reflection. So everything hangs on this. Reading everything else and understanding everything else through the eyes of Jesus Christ, but don't reinterpret who Jesus Christ is because of everything else. Don't let the enemy call into question what you know about God's character because of some life experience that you've had or a verse you can't understand. Be rooted and grounded in love revealed in Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that the whole of the Christian walk comes down to this. Learning how to see God and to see yourself and to see everybody else through the cross. To wear the cross. Everything I know about God and everything I know about me and everything I know about you is filtered through the cross of Jesus Christ. There there can be no competitors there. And you see, it's it's when that lifeline gets crowded, gets clogged, gets blocked, 
that we stop drinking as fully from the source of life. He becomes to some degree untrustworthy, to some degree unloving, to some degree ambiguous. To that degree, you don't go to him to meet the innermost needs. And to that degree, you can't give. Because you, you can't give what you're not getting. And if you're not getting unsurpassable free love, you can't be giving unsurpassable free love. Know that God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me leave you with two challenges very quickly. And I, this is a classroom, and I'm a professor, so I'll give you some homework. Here's your homework. Number one, you've got to spend time. We've got to spend time getting rooted and grounded in love. This doesn't happen automatically, and it doesn't happen through a casual religious relationship. Going to church once a week won't do it. You need to get rooted and grounded in love. It takes time. The kind of relationship my wife and I have that would, is such that a, a videotape wouldn't begin to phase me, is that we spend time together. It takes time. You spend time being together, saying I love you, growing together, interacting together. We need to spend time doing this. Every marriage needs a time where you get away from the kids, you get away from the bills, you get away from the problems, and you just do what you were created to do, and that is to love one another. You know, you just need a romance together. That's how you get rooted and grounded in love. You build a stability there. You build a source there from which you can do everything else. It's the same thing in our relationship with God. Saints of God, we need to have time that we set aside to love God and let God love us. And that's it. Just drink of the love. Just drink of the love. A time where you just let God love you. There's an ancient practice called cataphatic prayer. And I can't go into it right now, but, but I find it to be a very helpful way of doing this, where you just put on some music, picture Jesus as concretely as you can, and hear him say to you the things he's already told you in the Word of God. You're rooted and grounded in the Word of God. You know what it says? And let him say to you the things that are true. But he says it with your name on it, and you can see it, and you can hear it. And he hugs you while he says it, and now you're just drinking of this love. It gets concrete, it gets real, and then it impacts you. And that's how you get transformed by the love of God. I have a book out, out in the, uh, at Shepherd Tape and Books called Seeing Jesus, which discusses this practice of cataphatic prayer and how to go about you know, praying in, in this way. And it can be a very, very good source of, of transformation in our life. And the second thing also comes from the church tradition. Anyone here ever read Brother Lawrence's Practicing the Presence of God? It's a very good book. Uh, it's, it's just this. What Brother Lawrence says is, try to practice being in the presence of God at all times, in all places, in all situations. And so what I challenge you to do is this. Try to walk in the understanding that this very moment, and now this very moment, you are the object of God's unsurpassable love. The love that God is throughout eternity is right now directed towards you. And walk in that. Try to be aware of it. Try to make it part of your tacit consciousness, if you will. So you're aware of this. What I do sometimes is as I'm walking around, I, I just uh, am aware of a waterfall, a Niagara Falls waterfall falling down on me. It kind of comes to the funnel. It just goes right into the top of my head. This is how I represent it. It just goes into my head, and then it hits in the core of my being. You probably think I'm nuts right now. And then it shoots out. And this is the love of God coming to me, landing in me, and flowing through me. And I just walk like that. I'm just a spring machine. Love, 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 love. You know, it's just... Niagara Falls. But see, here's the thing. I'm not creating a reality by thinking about it. I'm just recognizing and releasing a reality by thinking about it. The valve for the whole thing is between your ears. So walk in the awareness of, of the reality. This doesn't create the reality. It releases it. You are at every moment loved, and at, at every moment you are to love. Receive it and give it. And try to walk in that awareness in all situations at all times and be transformed by the love of God. Praise God. Let me, let me give one more challenge. Would you close your eyes and pray? And the challenge is this. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you want to do it right now, I want you to raise your hand very quickly. 
you want to you want to get in on this love thing that we're talking about, be the recipient of God's unsurpassable love. You you know that your life is empty without Him. Would you just raise your hand and I'll pray for you from up here. We're all going to pray this prayer together. Anybody here at all? Never done that? You want to do it right now? This is how you join the kingdom. This is how you join the church. This is how you join the body of Christ. You're just a prayer away. Raise your hand if you if if you'd like to do that. Over there. Amen. Wonderful. Anybody else? Anybody else? In the back there, I see a hand that's up. In the middle there, I see a hand that's up. He's saying, I surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Anybody else? The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with Sister, amen. Wonderful. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. This is what it's all about. Just raise your hand. Anybody else? I, I, I may be missing somebody, but, but God sees it over here. Another person. Wonderful. 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 Over there, brother. Amen. Sister. Another brother over here. Hallelujah. I just love this. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you. He died for you. But you need to say yes to it. And that's what begins this whole process. Those who raised their hand or others who want to pray this prayer, pray it from the depths of your heart. We'll all join with you as a source of support. But pray it and mean it. Heavenly Father, you are God, my Creator, and my Lord. And I have not lived in a way that pleases you. I am a sinner. But I believe that you still love me and that you sent Jesus to die for me. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Fill me with your love and help me live for God from now on. I surrender everything. All my pain, all my issues, all my problems, all my life over to you right now. Amen. Amen. Welcome to the kingdom. You who raise your hand, those who pray the prayer. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. And could I ask you who, who prayed that prayer in the back of the auditorium, it will take one minute. We have some information that you really need to get in order to learn what it is to walk with God now. This is just the very, 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 very beginning. There's so much more for you if you'll just follow it through. So start by, by going back to the, uh, the back of the auditorium and getting that information. Would the prayer team come forward? And uh, uh, if you have a need that you'd like to have prayed for, we uh, encourage you to come forward and pray. Covenant Partners, stick around. We'll have some pizza in the back. We'll have a half-hour break, and then we'll come back here for the Covenant Partner meeting. Go forth and love like madness to a world that desperately needs it. Amen.